by way of announcements, two things coming up this on Saturday. We have the men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, actually three things, 7.30. Then at 9 o'clock, we have our deacons meeting. And then in the afternoon at 2 p.m. will be the memorial service for uh, Dorothy Hanish. On Sunday, we have a busy day. We have our morning uh, worship service at 10.30, and then there will be an annual congregational meeting following that, which will go fairly briefly. And then in the afternoon, there is the memorial service for Doug Sanders. And some of you may not remember them. Older couple, they came fairly regularly from about 2005 to about 2009 or 10. Then they moved into a retirement home and had difficulty with transportation and other things. They would show up for uh, communion Sunday, and then probably about five or six years ago, uh, even that stopped. And I'm not sure exactly how old Doug was, but I think he was around 94 or 95. The, uh, that service will be at 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon at Landon Ridge, which is the retirement home where they lived in the common dining area, and that's at 744 Brook Street. So you can look that up at Landon Ridge. So that will be on Sunday. So we have a, or at least I have a very full calendar this weekend. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always need to make sure that we are ready to study the Word. We're ready to focus on our spiritual life. This should not be the first time today, I hope, but that uh, you will have remembered earlier in the day the need to uh, keep short accounts with the Lord. So we uh, need to constantly be reminding ourselves that we need to be walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And when we do, we need to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins, and instantly God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we can come before your throne of grace. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You are our redeemer. You are our creator who created us in your image and likeness to represent you on this earth and to glorify you. And yet because of sin, there is so much corruption and evil in the world Yet you loved us in such a way that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, that we might have everlasting life by simply trusting in you for our salvation. We're so thankful for our salvation. And now we need to continue to pursue the growth of that life that uh, you have given us to grow to maturity, to glorify you, and to 
carry out your will in our lives. Father, we pray that you might motivate us, challenge us, encourage us as we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Let's begin by opening our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, and we will review a little bit where we've come from in the uh, previous lessons. It's been over a month since we last were in Second Peter because we ha- I have been gone. We had Christmas. I was sick last week. And by the way, there was a lesson that was played last week, which I chose because it provides good background for what we're studying. And I'm assuming that if you're here and you regularly come on Thursday night that you went through that lesson last week. It is important. It is something that is uh, critical, and I didn't want to reteach it again tonight, but we'll touch on it a little bit, something that we all need to be reminded uh, about. And so as we get into this particular passage, I want to just bring us back to focus on this first chapter of Second Peter. What we're looking at tonight is the phrase in verse 11, ritually entering into the kingdom. This is a significant phrase, and it brings to the foreground several important teachings of Scripture related to rewards and judgment and God's motivation in our lives. It deals with some issues that people are, even even those who are very, very close uh, in their understanding of the word, a lot of friends that we know may differ on how some of these passages are understood. And I'm going to try to shed a little light and less heat on some of this because I think it's very, uh, very important to come to this uh, particular understanding of what is going on in the background here. So let's just remind ourselves of the context of verses 5 through 9. <clears throat> in verses 5 through 9, Peter talking to them as believers. We'll come back and look at that when we, when I, uh, we get a little further into this. He is going to challenge them to press on in their spiritual life. He says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith. Right there we see that they are believers because they have faith. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So he has this list of spiritual qualities here, spiritual virtues and character traits that are similar to other lists. So none of these lists, such as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 20 and 21, are exhaustive lists. But they, they, they all overlap uh, one another. And it's the result of walking by the Spirit. It is not morality. Unbelievers can be moral. Religious unbelievers can be uh, exasperatingly moral and self-righteously moral. And you've run into people like that. And so this is not necessarily something that is produced by the Holy Spirit. The spiritual life goes beyond simple morality. It goes to the spiritual virtues that we can't produce on ourselves. They're supernaturally produced. 
by God the Holy Spirit. So in these three verses, we know, first of all, he's talking to them as believers, and he's motivating them through his command to press on to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And then in verses 8 and 9, there's a contrast. He says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither unproductive nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he connects these qualities to being fruitful. That's important because a lot of uh, Christian teaching thinks that fruit is how many people are coming to your church, how many people are in your congregation, how many people are saved, how many people you've witnessed to, and they try to quantify the Christian life. This is part of the problems in the movement called Lordship Salvation. They try to quantify faith and they try to quantify the spiritual life so that it's somehow measurable and you can look to your works to determine whether or not you're saved. Now there's a contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 9 we read, for he who lacks these things. So verse 8 is those who have these things and abound, they continue to grow. And then verse 9 is those who lack these things. They're not growing. Their lives aren't any different from the unbeliever next door, down the street, or in the next cubicle at the office. They lack these things. What things? They lack uh, fruitfulness in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They lack these virtues that are listed in verses 5 through 7. For he who lacks these things is... Uh, Three things. He's short-sighted, which means he's spiritually myopic. He is blind, a second category, which means he is completely ignorant of spiritual truth. And he has forgotten that that he was cleansed from his old sins. Another statement that makes it clear that his readers are understood to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that, for background, we have to develop this a little further in order to make a more, a more significant point. And that question is, are these recipients believers or unbelievers? And that's a really important question. You would be surprised how many people on the one hand will take this that they are, those who aren't quite there are unbelievers. And that will change some as, they, as you see how they handle certain things in this epistle. But it's not just significant for what we read in Second Peter. It's important for what we read in its companion epistle, the one chapter of Jude, as well as several other, other passages. So let's just look at the evidence, just in what we've seen in the first Uh, 10 to 12 verses that support this. First of all, he addresses it to those who have obtained like precious faith. The like precious faith with us, us being the apostles. So they are clearly saved. They have the same faith. They believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person together. They believed he died on the cross as a payment for sin, he was our substitute, and by faith in Christ you alone you have eternal salvation. So right there he's clear that they are believers. Then in verse 3, 
He says that God's omnipotence, his divine power, has given to us. Now he includes himself in the us. He's not talking about just the apostles. He's talking about his readers and including himself. So it's Peter and his readers. He's given all of us as believers all things that pertain to life in godliness. So again, God does not do that for unbelievers. God does that to believers. When they are saved, he gives all of these things. That's part of all of those different things that God provides at the instant that we are saved. We are just, God just does this spiritual dump on us in an instant, and we receive all these different uh, spiritual uh, values and assets that are ours, that will continue to be ours for all eternity. Then the third piece of evidence comes from verse 4, where Peter says, by which have been given to us, that is once again Peter and his readers, all believers, exceedingly great and precious promises. So he wouldn't be saying that if he thought that he was writing to unbelievers. He is convinced that his audience is made up 100% of believers given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, being a partaker of the divine nature is not regeneration. You'll run into some people who will say that, that that is this getting this new divine nature, but that's not what he is saying. He's already said they have like faith with the apostles, so they're already saved, that being a partaker of this divine nature is an indication of growth. It's what Paul describes in Romans uh, 828 to 30, that is being conformed to the image of God, ex- bringing in to your life and my life the qualities, the spiritual qualities of Jesus Christ's character, described by the fruit of the Spirit and by the list of virtues that are going to be listed in verses 5 through 7. Then we come forth to verse 5, by which have been given to us, uh, wait a minute, one other point here, and that is that the that the verb here, that through these you might be, that is an aorist subjunctive. Now, sometimes when I throw these terms out, people don't know, well, they just, mind goes foggy because it's grammar. The aorist simply means it's a past tense. What's important is the mood. It's subjunctive. A subjunctive mood is the idea of might be. It, it could. It expresses the possibility of something or the potential of something. So we're given everything pertaining to life and godliness at the instant of salvation. We're given God's uh, precious promises. This all relates to our potential to live a life where we can grow to spiritual maturity, demonstrate the character of Christ, become partakers of the divine nature, and glorify God through spiritual maturity. So not every believer is going to do this. They might do it. He, do, he doesn't say that through these you will. See, that would confirm the Reformed or Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of saints, which says that the true believer, the one who is truly elect, will automatically continue to grow spiritually through their life, and they'll manifest fruit. By fruit, they mean something measurable, quantifiable, observable. Uh, that they will manifest fruit by which you can know that you are saved. In other words, the object of faith for assurance is on your works, not on the promise of God. That's part of the problem with the Reformed doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. There are many others. 
But what Peter says is that you might be partakers. It's a possibility. It's not a necessity. It's not inevitable. That's the doctrine of perseverance, that you will inevitably grow if you are truly saved. If you don't grow, then you probably weren't saved. You just think you were. You just are confused. You think you had a faith in Christ that was saving, but it was a faith in Christ that wasn't saving. You have a number of Reformed theologians I could quote, John MacArthur would be one of them, that clearly state that you can have a non-saving faith in Christ. And the only way you can tell the difference between a saving faith in Christ and a non-saving faith in Christ is by your fruit. We'll get back to that a little later uh, when we talk about fruit in Matthew chapter 7. So it's a potential. That's the important thing to understand here. So there are going to be some believers who don't actuate that potential. They will not grow. The potential never develops in their life for spiritual maturity, and you have others that will activate that. Now, I believe, as you heard in the lesson from Revelation 64 last week, that those who grow and mature are called overcomers. Those who don't grow and don't mature are not called overcomers. They are not overcomers. They don't overcome anything. We'll get back to that a little later on. In verse 5, we have a fourth uh, evidence of their, their salvation when Peter says that, you, that for this reason, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. So they're to add to their faith. Their starting point is their faith. They have the same like faith as the, as the apostles back in verse 1. They are believers. They trusted in the gospel. They trusted in Christ as Savior. And now they are to add to that faith. But the subjunctive mood from the previous verse indicates that that's just a potential. It's not inevitable. So it's, he's motivating them. And then he's going to continue to motivate them. This is the fifth line of evidence that they're believers in verse 8 because it says, for if these things are yours... now. Those of you who've been around a little while and heard me teach for a while know that there are three different ways that the Greek language can express the concept of if. But this is another way, and this is a way that is expressed through a participle. Now, the other three ways can indicate if and something is assumed to be true, if and something is assumed to not be true, or if, and we're not sure whether it'll be one way or the other way. This probably follows in that if, maybe it will, and maybe it won't category, but it's just expressed through a participle. And so that's what you have here is uh, this participle in the upper left box here, huparco, and it's a present active participle, but it's conditional, And it says, so if this exists, if you possess this, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if they are yours, okay, if they are, if you see these virtues developing in your life, then you have the promise that you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. Actually, it's a present tense verb there, so it should be translated, you are neither barren nor unfruitful. You're growing, you're maturing, that's fruit in your life. Um, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that fruit is characterized by, in this case, character quality, which is not always observable. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's, sometimes it's not. 
So verse 8 indicates this contrast between those who have these virtues. And then the sixth evident line of evidence is those who don't have these things. And they're the opposite. So on the one hand, you have believers who are growing, you're maturing, who are uh, 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 who you see character transformation, Christ changes their character, and then you have those that don't. They're not activating their potential for spiritual growth. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and they're saying, well, so what? I'm going to go have fun. They're like the prodigal son, and they go live in the pigsty. For he who lacks these things is three things, short-sighted, Here's our first word there. Our, actually, he who lacks these things is the word parami, which means that they're not present. For he who does not have these things present is short-sighted. He's nearsighted. Actually, blindness is the first one listed in the Greek. He's first of all spiritually blind. Second, he is nearsighted, myopic. He can't look beyond the end of his nose. He can't, can't live in light of eternity. And third, he is forgetful of the fact that he's been cleansed uh, from his sins. So that third category is very important because it indicates that they had been cleansed from their old sins. They were forgiven. They were justified. They were declared righteous. They were regenerate believers. There's no question about it with these six things. But then we're going to see that there's one more, and we'll get back to that in just a minute, and that has to do with what comes up in the following verses. So Second uh, Peter one twelve then says, for this reason, this, excuse me, I put it the slide here, this is the, uh, uh, the seventh reason. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. What is he saying there? He's saying, I need to repeat this over and over and over and over again so that you will not forget it and so that you will be reminded that God has given you all these things and it will motivate you to keep pressing on to spiritual maturity. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Once again, that he could only say that if they're believers. Now, the reason I've gone back and I've belabored this a little bit to make sure that we all understand this is that in these 11 verses or 12 verses, what we see is clearly that there are two different categories of believers. Those who are going to press on and activate the potential that God gives us at the instant of salvation and those who could care less and those who don't. And we can lead a horse to water, but we can't make him drink. As pastors, as spiritual leaders, you can only do so much. I was having a talk with another pastor the other day, and we were talking about some other pastors. And he was telling me about some of the things that, that they, were, they were engaged in. Young pastors, hopefully they'll learn and grow out of this. It's, I think it's one of the many pitfalls that pastors fall into. And they've become helicopter pastors. Y'all know what helicopter parents are. Parents that are always hovering around the kids and they want to protect them from everything. And they, they are you know, overly attentive to every detail in their life. They just hover. Well, they're pastors who do that. 
And when they see people in their congregation not doing what they've taught them to do, they start getting involved in their lives and trying to help them make application. And I think that that's, that's going to get you in trouble because you have to teach people and leave it up to them, just like if those of you who have been parents have learned that at some point you just teach your kids what to do and you have to leave it up to them. They're either going to fall flat on their face and learn the hard way or they're going to listen to what you have to say. And usually they, we, we have all fallen on our face a few times. And so... Um, we can't be this, the pastors can't, can't be that way. And we have to teach the truth and it's up to you to learn it, to figure it out and apply it. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got all the same resources that God has given me. And it's your job then to take it and to apply it and to learn it and to grow. So you have the growth people, believers on one side, and you may go through a period, you may get saved and go through a period where you don't grow. That, that is not uncommon. And then you may go through a period where you really grow a lot, and then you think, oh, my life's all straightened out with all the problems I had before I was saved are gone, and I've got life by the tail, God's blessed me, and then you're failing the prosperity test, and you're going to start regressing before long, and then maybe God's going to have to get your attention the hard way. So you have two kinds of believers. You have the one who grows on the one hand, and then you have the one who just doesn't. And that doesn't mean they weren't saved. It means that that's all they wanted. They just want to end up in heaven. As somebody once told me, they said, well, I don't care if I'm in the gutter in the golden streets of heaven or if I'm in a mansion. And I said, I think when you get there, you will. It'll make a difference. There are going to be differences. And some people think that God's a Marxist, and when we get to heaven, there won't be any differences. Everybody will receive all the same things, but that's not what I see in the Scripture. We'll talk about that a little more. So this is really a huge, huge debate in hermeneutics, in interpreting Scripture. And the debate is, whether or not a passage that is being studied is contrasting growing believers with carnal believers. And there's a lot of passages. You're familiar with some of them. And then there are others who approach the Bible, and they believe that all of these passages are describing believers versus unbelievers. Now, the New Testament epistle that I would say is the poster child for this issue is 1 John. 1 John is, a, is an epistle that is dealing with, in my opinion, a contrast consistently all the way through. It is a contrast between believers and unbelievers. But you will find that that's not the predominant interpretation of 1 John. That in the Reformed camp and in the Lordship camp, it is interpreted as a contrast between unbelievers and believers. And so when, you talk, when he talks about those walking in darkness, that he's talking about unbelievers, but those who are true believers walk in the light.
And he will go on to say, and you've heard some people say this, that if you're a believer, you're saved, you've been cleansed from all sin, so you don't need to confess your sin. Now, I've heard that from some people who otherwise are pretty squared away, and they understand grace and the grace gospel. But that's a lordship position. That is a conclusion that is consistent with the lordship interpretation of First John, that First John is contrasting believer and unbeliever, and if you say, well, you don't need to confess your sin, what you're assuming is that the person who's the um, unbeliever doesn't commit, uh, admit his sin, but the believer does. And eventually you can work yourself into, and many people have, that this is a description of, ex- of, of salvation. But it, it, it goes deeper than that. First John is an extremely difficult epistle to interpret. And I remember spending many years, both when I was in seminary and afterward, just working through all of these particular particular issues. And what opened it up for me was when I went to Connecticut and was teaching through the Gospel of John, when I hit the upper room discourse in 1 John 12, and then especially getting into, or 1 John 13, and especially getting into the subsequent chapters and then coming to, first, for, uh, to John 15, realizing that uh, abiding in Christ, that is another key, key section that is so, so critical, that abiding in Christ is either considered to be a synonym for believing in Christ, those who abide are believers, those who don't abide are not believers, or the other view that those who, who are in fellowship abide and those who aren't in fellowship don't abide. Those are two contrasting, totally different positions. And as I got into this, it really opened things up. And then I went from teaching John, the Gospel of John, to teaching First John and realized that all of the language in First John reflects the language of Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse. The vocabulary is the same. John talks like, like Jesus. He's, he's, a, a young man often will imitate or sound like the person who he idolized and who taught him, and they will sound like them. And I've had several people tell me that you sound sort of like so-and-so, and I've had people tell me I sound like somebody else, both of whom were very influential in me in my background. So that tends to come out, and people can hear certain commonalities in vocabulary and that kind of a thing. But First John is, I believe, John the Apostle's late-in-life reflection, the results of his reflection of what Jesus taught in the upper room. He taught, Jesus taught that the night before he went to the cross, and that was in A.D. 33. John probably wrote around 90. So we're talking about a little less than 60 years later. So he's had a lot of time to think about what Jesus said. And if you misinterpret John 15, you'll, you'll misinterpret 1 John. And what I've seen over the years is that whoever, that, that there's, there's a, a, a constant similarity, that those who interpret 1 John as fellowship, I mean, excuse me, John 15 as fellowship, will see 1 John as fellowship, tests of fellowship, contrasting believe, uh, spiritual believers with carnal believers. Those who interpret John 15 as salvation will take 1 John as contrasting believer with unbeliever. And so 
that's important. Now, let me just summarize. I don't have this on a slide. Let me just summarize uh, a lot of these contrasts. But I've mentioned two passages already. I've mentioned uh, First uh, John and John 15, but other passages that are fit this same pattern are James 2, 14 through 26. Faith without works is dead. Is that, is that whole passage, is that whole epistle contrasting believer versus unbeliever, or is it contrasting a spiritual growing believers with those who are not spiritual and are not growing and are carnal? Hebrews 6, 1 through 6, a noted difficult passage, as well as all of the warning passages in Hebrews. You have those who apply all those warning passages to unbelievers and others who see them as warning to believers that they don't fall into complacency and and go into neutral and regress in their spiritual life. In fact, I know of a Greek professor who taught at Capital Bible Seminary and he always, and he, in many ways he was and would say he was free grace and believed in a free grace gospel. But when it came to any of these passages, he always interpreted them as if he was lordship. But he wasn't lordship. He just didn't understand or he hadn't come to a point where he saw it that way. And he, he took all these passages as contrasting believer and unbeliever. So there's a lot of confusion by in the you know by some very bright men who know Greek and Hebrew and it all comes down to it, hermeneutics and interpretation. So you have also have the sermon on the mount. That's another another issue. So we'll get into some of these different things, but let's just talk about 1 John a little bit before we go on. When I was covered that lesson last week in Romans 64 about overcomers, one of the things I pointed out is when you look at those seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of each one of those epistles, there's a motivational statement, uh, about, and there's a promise of rewards or some sort of reward to those who overcome. Contextually, I believe that those overcomer uh, motivational statements are all preceded by an identification of certain problems, certain spiritual problems in each of those congregations with the exception of two. And then they're told that the one who overcomes, contextually it's overcoming those sins, you know, growing in maturity. And there are others, though, even free grace people, who believe that all of those overcomers are the same. But uh, to understand that, you have to recognize that in First uh, John chapter five, uh, verse five, and it talks about the fact that that uh, those who are born who are born again overcome the world. And I went through that last time, showing that the way John uses that phrase "overcome," I mean, uh, to be born again. Is, doesn't mean re, is not equivalent to being regenerated. That's hard for people to get their mind around this. But just one example, John says those who are born again don't ever sin. How many people here never have sinned since the day they were regenerated? Not one of you. 
not one of you, then none of you are saved. If that means those who are born again. But John uses it in a different sense. He's using it in the sense who those who are living in light of their regeneration don't sin. That's the same thing Paul says over in Galatians 5.16, that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So if you're not walking by the flesh, then you're not sinning. But when you start, when you stop walking by the Spirit, then you're going to sin. So those who are born again in, in 1 John are those who are living like they're born again. Those who are living like they're born again are overcomers. That means those who are not living like they're born again are not overcomers. Now let's see this contrast through 1 John. In 1 John, he contrasts believer who is growing with the believer who is not growing, who is carnal. In 1 John, believers may walk in the light or they walk in darkness. They have fellowship with one another or they don't have fellowship with one another. If they're not walking in the light, then 1 John says you can't have fellowship with one another because a carnal believer cannot have fellowship. That gives you a new sense of what fellowship means. It is an intimate partnership. You can't really have fellowship with someone who is not walking by the Spirit, not walking in the light. Believers may admit their sin to God, but carnal believers do not admit their sin to God. They deny that they have, that they have sin. I'm going to turn over here to 1 John for just a minute. Most of this is just in the first, first chapter. For example... Um, in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He doesn't say if they say they have no sin. He's talking about believers. If we say that we have no sin, then we're in self-deception. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He doesn't mean we're not saved. He means we're living according to a lie. We're walking in darkness. We don't have fellowship with one another. So continue to have these sins. In 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He is writing this epistle to believers so that they can have an experience at times in their life that they don't sin. A lot of people say, wow, that sounds like legalism to me. No, it sounds like somebody who's walking by the Spirit consistently. He's reached a certain level of maturity. maturity. He's not sinless but he's going to go more than a nanosecond without getting into carnality again, like many of us, okay? So the believer who's walking in the light may not sin, but the believer who is carnal is going to be sinning continuously. We also have the fact that uh, he goes on to say in 1 John 2, 3 and following, he says that, uh, the believer who is walking in the light is abiding in, uh, is, knows God. He's walking in the light, he knows God, but the believer who walks in darkness doesn't know God. We studied this before in John uh, chapter 14, after Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to go to heaven, and Peter says, well, well how do we get there? What's, how do we get there? And then Philip's, and, and Jesus says that he's going to the Father, and then Philip says, well, show us the Father. 
And then Jesus said, how long have I been with you, Philip, that you don't know the Father? If you see me, you know the Father. He's saved, but he hasn't grown very much. So the spiritual believer knows God. The carnal believer does not know God. The spiritual believer abides in him. The carnal believer does not abide in him. The spiritual believer loves his brother. The carnal believer hates his brother. The spiritual believer, the word abides in him. The carnal believer, the word does not abide in him. And then we get down to 1 John 2.14, and he's praising the, uh, the, young, the young men in verse 13 and in verse 14. And he says that you young men have overcome the wicked one. Now, that's an important term. They're not the little children. The little children are the brand new baby believers. The young men are more intermediate, adolescent believers. And he says they've overcome the wicked one. And so therefore, those who are not at that stage of maturity have not overcome the wicked one. That's the opposite meaning of that sentence. So that would indicate, again, that they're not overcomers. 1 John 5, 5 says it talks about those who have overcome the world. They are the ones who are born again. They're the ones who are living in light of being born again. And so the Bible uses this term about uh, overcoming the world. Jesus used it in John sixteen thirty three when he said, I have overcome the world using a perfect tense verse, meaning that in his life to that point, he has completed that work of overcoming the world. He has not yielded to the temptation to be conformed to Satan's thought systems, Satan's philosophies, or Satan's modus operandi. He is not, he has completed that work of overcoming the world. And so the object of overcoming is overcoming the wicked one, overcoming the world. It is not overcoming your sin nature. Never says that. It's not a justification issue. It is a sanctification phase two issue. Because Jesus, before he goes to the cross, distinguishes his work of overcoming the world from what's going to take place the next day when he bears the sin penalty in his own body on the cross. So that means that overcoming is a phase two spiritual life issue and not a phase a phase one issue. And that's the purpose of the overcomer statements at the end of each of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. It's motivational. Now, there's a, one problem with this. I read a recent book that's just been published by an individual who takes a free grace position, and it's on the judgment seat of Christ. At the conclusion, he talks about this issue of identifying the overcomers, and he said there's two views. He's wrong. He's ignorant of the third view. The first view is that all overcomers, all believers are also all overcomers. The second view, he says, that some believers are not overcomers and they will be uh, cast into outer darkness during the millennial kingdom. Now, that is what I believe an extremely false doctrine that is taught by some members of G the GES crowd. And the reason they get there is because those statements about those who are cast into outer darkness, whether it's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, 
are concluding statements at the end of several um, several parables in the Gospels. But they're all kingdom parables, and all kingdom parables relate to Israel. They don't have anything to do with church-age believers, period. And when these guys at GES, Zane Hodges did it, he was one of my, he was my first-year Greek professor, others with GES take that position, and they're just dead wrong. They have misinterpreted every single one of them, and one of the hidden interpretive realities is that Zane and Bob Wilkin and others put the rapture in the middle of Matthew 24. And if you put the rapture in the middle of verse 20, Matthew 24, around 32 or 33, if you put the rapture in there, now you've gotten the church into Matthew 24. And so whatever happens after that, you can switch it from judgments at the end of the tribulation to judgments that occur at the um, at the rapture, that is the uh, bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And I had a great quote when I gave a presentation of that paper at pre-trib a few years ago, and I actually had an audio of it, and I had Lewis Berry Chafer say out loud what he said in class, and he said that no matter who you are, uh, you can't put the church into Matthew 24 or 25, and he said even good friends of his like Harry Ironside and um, others, uh, he had confronted him to their face because they were confusing uh, church-age truth with uh, truth related to Israel. Matthew 24 and 25 is all truth related to Israel. So those outer darkness passages in the Gospels all relate to eternal judgment on those who have uh, failed to respond to the gospel of the kingdom. And so that's been been very confusing. But this guy thinks that everybody who has a view of an overcomer and those who don't, that automatically those who are not overcomers, they get sent to uh, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's wrong. I never even heard that view until I... until. I was probably late 90s or early 2000s. I grew up under a pastor who did not teach that. And I'm not sure that I really heard him teach that as I was growing up and young. You know, you catch the big ideas and not always all the small ideas. But I don't think he ever taught that that I could remember. And then um, when I was in seminary, I never went into it. But when I was out of seminary, I was going to Tomball Bible Church where Harry Leaf was the pastor, and Harry ordained me. Harry, did, Harry held the same position I hold. And he was a really strong Calvinist, but he rejected the re- most of the stuff on the Reformed view of the, uh, of the spiritual life. Uh, so, you, you know, I, I just never heard this. I, I, I was thinking through all the people that I, that I heard teaching me as a young man, not one of them held to this, this view of, uh, we, that, that failures at the judgment seat of Christ go to uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing teeth, some sort of spiritual purgatory during the millennial kingdom. Let's look at this quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 gives us the best description, the most detailed description of the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says we're God's fellow workers, and he compares the building of your spiritual life with the construction of a building. And in verse 10, he says, 
that he lays a foundation, and that foundation is, uh, in verse 11, is none other than Jesus Christ. But he says, let each one take heed how he builds on it. So it's your responsibility to determine how you build on that foundation of the gospel. Some Christians don't build anything on that foundation of the gospel. Others build just their own morality, their own good works, and that's described as wood, hay, and straw. Believers who are walking according to the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, uh, God the Holy Spirit is producing fruit. Their lives are not barren or fruitless, and so they're producing gold, silver, and precious stones. And then at the judgment seat of Christ, that's the phrase, the day will declare at the time of the judgment seat of Christ, each one's work will become evident. And the focus here isn't on the things you did wrong, but on the things that God the Holy Spirit produced in your life. And so the metaphor that's used here is of a bonfire. And all your works, the works produced by the Holy Spirit, the works produced by your sin nature are all piled up and God strikes a match and lights it on fire. That which you did by your own efforts, works of the flesh, that gets all burned up. Nothing left. But fire doesn't destroy gold, silver, precious stones. So what's left, what's made evident, is that which has eternal or enduring value. That's the gold, silver, and precious stone. It's revealed by the fire, and the fire tests or evaluates, dokimazo, evaluates for a positive reason, uh, evaluates each one's work of what sort it is. And then in verse 14, we have a contrast with verse 15. Verse 14 is the overcomer. If anyone's work which has built on it endures, and that's the word minnow. It's the word that's translated abide, abiding in Christ. Those who abide in Christ are going to have works that abide. Uh, anyone who has built on it abides, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Yet he will be saved, yet it's through fire. See, he suffers loss. What does he lose? He loses rewards. He doesn't have any rewards. Is he still saved? Yes. Is he going to be punished? No. He just doesn't have rewards. He doesn't build the capacities for all of the things he will experience in heaven. Now, I always like the illustration, everybody's cup is going to be filled to overflowing at the judgment seat of Christ. Some people are going to have a Texas-sized mug, Others are going to have a demi-cost cup. So the issue is which one are you going to be? Which one am I going to be? Are we going to be standing there with a huge Texas-sized mug, or are we just going to get a little bitty thimble? And uh, uh, those are those who suffered loss. They are not going to receive the wards they had the potential of receiving. But this goes on a little further. In the next two verses, these verses are not disconnected from before, Paul reminds them of something that should motivate them. Do you not know that each of you are a temple of God? God the Holy Spirit is living in you. Verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, how are they defiling the temple of God? By not walking by the Spirit. God will destroy him. That's not talking about eternal judgment. See, again, we're at this kind of passage where it's either talking about two different kinds of believers 
or it's talking about believer versus unbeliever. He's been talking about two different kinds of believers ever since the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, if you defile the temple, if you're a carnal believer, back in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, God is going to bring judgment into your life. And he's going to bring discipline into your life. And there's going to be loss. But you're not going to go through additional penalties for sin because Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. So there's just a loss of rewards, but you still have a resurrection body, you still have joy, you still have eternal life, you're still going to be in the presence of God in heaven, and you're going to be in the kingdom, but you may not be ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom. This is why Peter says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. You're to be diligent about it. We're to work at it. We're to focus at it. We're to make it a priority. This is what life's all about. It's not all about getting your PhDs. It's not all about joining uh, whatever group you need to join professionally. It's not about making your name professionally. It's about doing everything to the glory of God and being diligent to make your call and election sure. That idea of election is your commission, to make it certain so that you can look at your life and see I'm a growing believer, not for us to judge other people, but you're showing in your life that you are a growing, maturing believer. That's the context. And the idea of elect doesn't mean that God selects some for salvation or others. I've pointed this out many times. It has the idea of being choice, someone who has certain qualifications for tasks. And that's how it's used in Judges 20, verse 16, where it talks about the army of Benjamin that had 700 specially trained left-handed soldiers. They're, sling, they're using a slingshot. They're qualified for the position, their choice, and because they're qualified, because they're expert marksmen. And this is the same thing we've studied in the past, in the conclusion to the parable of Matthew 22, 1 through 14, that those who are invited to the wedding feast are those who respond to the invitation the, other, the only people who make a choice in that whole story are those who rejected the first invitation, and so they're not there, and those who responded to the second invitation, and they're there, and they receive the correct wedding garments, which is the righteousness of Christ. So the conclusion should be translated, many are invited, but few are choice. They're not chosen the... the um, the Lord of the house does not choose who will be there and who won't be there. The only ones who make a choice are the individuals. But because they possess the righteousness, the, which is the appropriate garments, they are considered choice. So we're to make sure in our lives that we bring out that evidence and we grow. And if you do these things, you'll never stumble. You're not going to fall to the wayside. You're going to grow. You're going to become an overcomer. And then verse 11, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's interesting here because the verb that is translated supplied is a verb we also see in this same passage. Back in verse 5, it's epikorigeo. It's a word that comes from the root, meaning the chorus in a Greek drama. 
And the issue there was in the background that somebody would, uh, uh, some benevolent individual would supply the financial needs for these who were going to be in the Greek chorus. And so it came to reflect the idea of a gracious supply being given this. And it's used as an active voice verb in one five, where we supply the virtues. It's up to our volition to grow, to walk by the Spirit, and as we do that, these virtues are added to our life. In one eleven, the verb is passive. The entrance will be supplied to us. God is the one who will richly reward us, and God is the one who's going to uh, praise us as we enter into the kingdom. But notice that phrase, uh, entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I got a call from my good friend Dan Ingram, and I do hope you continue to pray for Dan as he goes through all these different uh, things that happen as a result of going through chemo. And uh, he really needs that prayer. And he called me, and we were talking about this particular passage somebody had asked him about. What does it mean to enter by the narrow gate? For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now, most people take this, to the narrow gate, to be the one way to salvation. And the broad path is the way to try to get to heaven on your own. That's not that's not consistent with the context. If you look back at Matthew 5, 1, Jesus sits down with his disciples. He goes away from the crowd. He sits down with his disciples who are already believers. And he starts to tell them how believers are supposed to live, giving him his interpretation of the Mosaic law rather than the interpretation of the Pharisees. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about how believers in that dispensation are to live consistent with the uh, with the Mosaic law. So it's not talking about believer versus unbeliever once again. It's talking about, I mean, it, yeah, it's talking about believer, the spiritual believer who's uh, being a faithful disciple versus the carnal believer who's not a faithful disciple. Now let me just point out a couple of things for you uh, contextually so that you don't get too confused on this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 4. Matthew chapter 7, verse 4, it, Jesus, Jesus says, uh, starting in verse 3 actually, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and, uh, and look, a plank is in your own eye? It's a brother, talking about believers. He goes on to say, when you get down to verse 7, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. You can't say that to an unbeliever. He is talking to them as believers. For everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it shall be opened. And so he's continue to, continuing to talk about the kind of behavior for, uh, for believers. And then look, at, look down to verse, uh, verse 11. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his, some of whom he loves like John. These are his close companions. He 
walks the hills of Samaria and Judea with him. He camps out with them. Uh, he eats with them. And he says something. If I said this to you, you'd probably be offended. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. You, if I said that to you, you'd probably say, what do you mean I'm evil? See, he's talking to his disciples. And he says that can be evil. Why? Because the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's contrasting two different kinds of believers all through this, this particular se- section. And what's interesting is when you look down here, for example, in verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to, uh, to, to say to you or to do to you, do also to them. That third word is whatever you want. It should be translated whatever y'all want. It is a second person plural. He's talking to a group. So in verse 12, it's very clear in that context, he's talking to them as believers. You can't dispute it. He's not talking to the crowd, and there's a few other people who've come around by this time. He's not talking to them. This is a major hermeneutical flaw. At this point, a lot of people will say, now he starts talking to the unbelievers. No, he's not, because you, don't, you have the same language. He's talking to his disciples clearly as believers. He said, whatever y'all want men to do to y'all, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then he says, with a second person plural command, which means he's still talking to y'all. He says, y'all enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. The meaning of y'all hasn't shifted in this whole context. He's still talking to the same group of y'all, and the y'all are the disciples, believers. So he says to believers enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate is the walk of discipleship, of following Jesus, doing what Jesus says as it comes out later. So he says, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. These are believers who aren't overcomers. These are believers who won't have rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And then he immediately goes into a warning, beware. Now again, this is a second person plural imperative. He's talking to y'all again, y'all beware. He's talking to believers. And he says to them, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, are these false prophets believers or unbelievers? I bet if I took a poll, some of you'd say believers, others would say unbelievers, and y'all would all be right. Okay? It's like the old saying on a difficult passage, say, well, some people say this, some of my friends say this, some of my friends say that, and I'm for my friends. <laughs> In Acts 20, remember, Paul warns the Ephesian elders about false prophets, false teachers. He says in verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. See there, Jesus uses the phrase ravenous wolves to describe the false prophets in Matthew seven fifteen. Savage wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock. The indication there is they're coming from outside, so maybe they're not believers. Also, from among yourselves men will rise up. Ah, these are believers. So some are going to be unbelievers, and some are going to be believers. And those who are from among yourselves are going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So the disciples that follow them are not going to be overcomers. They're going to be uh, failures. Now, if you, we continue going in Second Peter, Second Peter two one, we get into the topic of false prophets and false teachers, where Peter says, "But there were also false prophets among the people. Who are the people there? That's Israel. He's talking about in the Old Testament." There were false prophets. He had false prophets in the Old Testament, but then he says, even as there will be false teachers among you. Notice, you, have fa- you don't have false prophets in the church age because you don't have prophets outside of the period of the apostles. You have false teachers. So even the, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That applies to whether they're believer or unbeliever. The destruction will be different. If they are an unbeliever, their destruction is eternity in the lake of fire. If they are a believer, there will be divine discipline in time and loss of rewards at the judgment seat of of Christ. So they all get some sort of destruction, but it depends what it is will depend on whether or not they are a believer. Then you look at Matthew seven sixteen and you say, you will know them by their fruits. Remember, we talked about uh, lordship salvation evaluating by their fruits. And so there's this whole discussion about the false teachers, I mean false prophets. But what their fruit is, is what they prophesy. Okay, it's not how they live. Now, it's not their character quality like fruit is used in Galatians 5 and also in Second uh, Peter 2. Here it's talking about the fruit of their lips, what they are teaching, and you will know them by their fruits. If they are teaching that which is consistent with the law, then they are speaking the truth. If not, it is something that is false. And there will be judgment. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good uh, fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That doesn't mean lake of fire. If you go cut down a tree because it's not producing fruit, you throw it in the fire. It's just talking about the the, the analogy. Uh, but it's the, the idea of destruction is going to be different for believer and unbeliever. Jesus concludes, therefore, by their fruit you will know them. And then in verse 21 he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, aren't we studying something like that in Second Peter one eleven, that those who are abounding in these things, they will have a richly supplied entrance into the kingdom. So entering the kingdom in some context doesn't mean getting into heaven when you die. It's how you get into the kingdom, which is the messianic kingdom, when the time comes, whether you will be richly supplied or not. So there are going to be some believers who come up and say, uh, to him, Lord, Lord, and they're not going to have a rich entry into the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who does the will of the Father. Now, that's not how you get into heaven by doing the will of the Father, unless you restrict it to responding to the gospel. But Jesus doesn't restrict it that way. 
He's talking about disciples and how disciples live. After you're saved, you need to do the will of the Father for this rich entry into heaven. And then he says in verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? In other words, all the signs and wonders crowd, all the charismatic crowd who sometimes get the gospel right, they're not going to have a rich entry into heaven because they're teaching false things. And so Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You're going to lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not that you're going to be thrown into outer darkness or anything. And then Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And that's contrasted with the foolish man who builds on sand. This is a, a believer can, after salvation, build his house on the rock of Scripture or on the sand of human viewpoint, just like an unbeliever can. And the long-term consequences, the eternal consequences will be different, but they'll both suffer negative consequences because they haven't listened to what Jesus has taught. And that's why everybody's so astonished when he finishes that. So we have to have rewards. Rewards motivate rewards uh, develop character. We live in a world today where people are given participation prizes just for doing something, just for participating. I thought, because I first became aware of this in the 1980s, that that's when it began with the rise of the self-esteem movement. Uh, The idea that every little kid goes down and plays his uh, tournament in baseball or t-ball or whatever, everyone gets a trophy because we don't want anybody to feel bad about themselves. So you get a participation prize. Well, I kind of think that those who teach that everybody gets rewards of the, ju- the same rewards of the judgment seat of heaven and everybody's an overcomer, I kind of think that's like telling everybody they're going to get a participation prize. I ran across this. I thought it was a little amusing. Giving your child a trophy for not winning pretty much guarantees that he will be living in your basement applying for jobs as a superhero until he's 40. I think there are a lot of believers who think, well, I'm going to get to heaven, everybody's going to get the same package. That destroys motivation. And they don't grow, and they don't mature. Makes a difference. Let's close in prayer. And then after that, don't leave, I'm going to give you a little rundown on the Egypt trip. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be encouraged and motivated by what the Scripture says. And Father, as... As we contemplate this, may we be motivated, as the Scripture intends, to live for you, to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the light, to study your Word, to make what we learn here part of our life and part of our thinking, knowing that many times it's two steps forward and a step and a half backwards, but we grow, and God the Holy Spirit enables us as we respond positively positively to his Word. For, Father, ultimately we desire to glorify you and for you to, for us to hear at the judgment seat of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. Challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week I was going to do a little bit about Egypt, and I'm going to say a little bit about Egypt just to give you an un, a little bit about what we, what we went through on the trip. Now, there's two different kinds of trips that you go on to the Middle East and to the Bible lands. One is a kind of trip that takes you to the places that are actually mentioned 
in the Bible where there are significant spiritual events. You go where Jesus walked, you go where Paul walked, you go where uh, we know Peter walked. But there are other places and lands in the Middle East that are significant for understanding the framework of, of the Scripture, to understand the framework of the Old Testament and understand the New Testament. Uh, Egypt is named in the Bible more than any other country. Egypt is named 612 times in the Bible. 612 times. By contrast, Babylon, which is extremely significant, is only mentioned 297 times, less than half as much. Assyria is only named 130 times. So Egypt is really emphasized in the Bible. Now, other areas of Greece and Turkey you can't really check out because Paul traveled there and the localities and the different towns and villages and cities that he went to are mentioned, so it's hard to really come up with a quantifying number there. But Egypt is important from the early times of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, you have the first mention of Egypt. The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim was one of the sons of Ham listed in Genesis chapter 10. What's interesting is this year I'm reading uh, the Bible chronologically and I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The first time Mitzrayim appears in Genesis chapter 10, they translated Egypt. So you know who they're talking about. Now after that, it's Mitzrayim. I don't know why they didn't keep using Egypt, but, but they didn't. Uh, so anyway, that's the first mention. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 12, the second half, Abraham and Sarah are in the land of Canaan and a, and a famine comes. And so they're going to leave and go down to Egypt because they, they don't trust God to take care of them during the time uh, of the famine. And what, if you think about that, Abraham is born in 2166. So this is a little after 2100. It's about 2090, 20, 2085, something like that. And he goes to, to Egypt. Well, uh, Cheops, or Khufu, who built the first pyramid, the Great Pyramid, builds that about 27 to 2800 B.C. So when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt, they saw the same pyramids and sphinx that we saw on this trip. That's really in, that that gives you a really different different sort of perspective, but just to orient you a little bit to Egypt, Egypt in the Bible is really a civilization that's just along the Nile. It, it doesn't spread out because it's just surrounded by by the Sahara. And what I've circled here at the top is the area of the Nile Delta, which is the richest, most fertile land in Egypt. This is the land of Goshen. If you were here for Doug Petrovich's talks, you learned that. This is the land of Goshen. Now, this circle here is where Tanis and uh, Avaris is located, where Pyramses was located. And so this was a central area. Pyramses, if he's correct, this is where Joseph had his palace. This is where Ephraim and Menashe had their, had their palace. And this is where they lived in, in Avaris. This circle down here at the very top right there, you have Cairo. What I didn't know, I think everybody learned this on the trip, is this is a huge, huge city. Cairo is the city on the east side of the Nile. Giza is the city on the 
west side of the Nile. Okay? Cairo is east. Giza is just one huge city. But when you cross the Nile, you move from Cairo to Giza or Giza to Cairo. And so the pyramids that you hear about, the big three are located right there in in Giza. In fact, you can see all the skyscrapers in the big city of Cairo and Giza in, in the background. But in the ancient world, the city was Memphis. Memphis is sort of been overrun by the by the spread the the urban sprawl of Cairo today so this is in the ancient world Memphis was the capital of the kingdom of lower Egypt you have to kind of turn things around when you go to the Nile because the Nile flows from south to north which is backward from any other uh, river that we're familiar with and so uh, you think of north as upper and uh, as up you know, north is always up and south is always down. But in Egypt, uh, up is uh, lower Egypt and down is, uh, is uh, upper Egypt. And so in, on this map, uh, we, went to, we flew into Cairo. And we, the first day, we went to the Cairo Museum, which is very interesting. And then the second day, we drove to Alexandria and back, and we just saw a few things in Alexandria. I will tell you this, if I do this again, I will not go to Alexandria. I don't think it was worth the seven to eight hours in the bus just to see the the few things that we that we saw there. If I go back, we're going to go over here to Tanis and Avaris and check that out if I ever take another group. So if you go up the Nile here, uh, down here is Amarna in the some letters, some ancient papyri was discovered there, letters from the pharaohs to uh, some of his overseers in the land of Canaan. That's a very famous site. We did not uh, go to any of those places after the, the third morning we got up. Now, those of you who have been to Israel with me, we've had a few early morning wake-up calls like at 5.30 or 6, and we get a little grousing. We had a 3 a.m. wake-up call because we were on a 6.15 a.m. flight where we flew south to uh, Luxor, which is ancient Thebes. This was the capital of the, uh, of the upper uh, kingdom in upper Egypt. Uh, so this is, there were two kingdoms, and you had the upper kingdom and the lower kingdom, and Luxor is ancient Thebes, and outside of ancient Thebes is where you have the Valley of the Kings, you also have the Valley of the Queens. We didn't go over there. The Valley of the Kings is where they discovered Tutankhamun's tomb and many, many other tombs. And they opened different ones at different times. And so the ones that we had hoped we would be able to get into were not ones we could. Uh, Wayne said there's a couple of tombs that had some hieroglyphic inscriptions that seemed to portray uh, the, a splitting of the Red Sea, another image of water where you have a bunch of bodies floating on top and that kind of a thing, but uh, we didn't go into that that tomb. Uh, we did go into the Cairo Museum. There are a lot of different things there that you see as you enter into the Cairo uh, Museum, and here you have a huge statue to Amenhotep IV and his wife, and what's interesting is normally husband and wife, the pharaoh and his wife don't touch, but her 
right arm comes down here behind his left elbow and she's holding it. It's a an extremely intimate portrayal of them showing that they had a rich personal love for each other. One of the significant things that we saw was the Merneptistele, which is sometimes called the Israel Stele or the Victory Stele of Merneptah. Stele is just where they've erected a, either an obelisk or just a flat stone that records the victory of some uh, ancient king. Merneptah ruled from 1213 to 1203 B.C., so he's during the time of the judges. And as you go and read down through this this stele, and you get down into this lower level here, uh, what you see in this blow-up on the right are three horizontal lines, and those three horizontal lines are mention of Israel. This is the oldest clear mention of Israel that we've discovered uh, in any ancient monument or uh, anything of that nature. And so it is agreed by almost everyone that this is a reference to Israel, which is why it's sometimes called uh, the uh, Israel Stele. You had uh, a capstone here for the top of a pyramid, and you have a lot of writing hieroglyphics on there. And these hieroglyphics that are in an oval are a cartouche. A cartouche is the name of an individual, usually a pharaoh or one of the rulers. And you have animals, like this is a a falcon, and the falcon is facing to the right, so that tells you that you're reading this line to the right. If you look here, this image here, I'm not sure what that represents, is, is open to the left, but you, you read, because of this, you're reading everything to the right, so it's pointing to the right. But here you have the same cartouche, but it's reversed. And so that tells you that, because see here, that's pointing to the left, so you read this whole line from right to, right to left. Uh, our guide was tremendous. He had his master's degree in archaeology. He's been a guide for 15 years, and he gave us, you know, he would try to teach us uh, how to read the hieroglyphs. So I've lost all that coming back. Here is a, one, a bull statue in the Cairo Museum, which was something like what Aaron would have modeled the golden calf over. And so they're different, uh, very, very similar, but various different uh, calf idols that are in uh, the Cairo Museum. This is a statue of Thutmose III. He is thought to have been the pharaoh just before the Exodus. He died about 1433. The Exodus was 14, I mean, 15, he died 1453. The Exodus was 1446. So his, his, uh, he was succeeded by Amenhotep II. And if I sent something out the other day about this film that's coming out about the Exodus route, uh, and I put a couple of links in there, one to go to the website for uh, biblical, uh, what is it? biblical Research Associates. If you go to that website, just type in Petrovich's name. He's got a number of articles, and he has a really good article on identifying the Exodus Pharaoh as Amenhotep uh, II. This is a bust of Queen Hatshepsut. 
Hatshepsut was the daughter of the I, going back almost to the beginning of the 18th dynasty, and she's his daughter. Many think she, he, she is the one who took Moses out of the water. You can't be dogmatic on these things. If you just change the dating by 20 years, you're, you're, you're in two or three different pharaohs earlier or later. So you have to be very careful not to say, oh, well, that's who these people were. It's possible, but, but these numbers on these chronologies shift um, and have shifted uh, quite a bit. So we have to be careful, but if our chronology is correct, then it's possible she was the daughter of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's had multiple wives and multiple children, so who knows which daughter was the one who uh, pulled Moses out of the Nile. But she was married to Thutmose II. Their son was Thutmose III, who was a baby when his father died. So Hatshepsut became the queen and ruled, and all of her images are of, as, as she's presented as a man because it was a, unusual for a woman to rule. So she ruled Egypt. She had, was a very strong uh, leader uh, over Egypt, and this is a bust of her. Uh, then, of course, everybody's heard about Tutankhamun, which is the son of Amenhotep IV. And uh, he was buried in five coffins, one inside of another, six, what, seven, eight, eight coffins, buried in eight coffins, extremely heavy. The first two coffins were solid gold. Think about that. And then you have his, his mask, which was solid gold, solid gold. There weren't any gold mines in Egypt. So they had to send slaves far away, three or 400 miles away to gold mines that weren't producing a lot of gold. This took, this was just an incredible amount of gold that took years to produce and lots of labor. So we looked at Tutankhamun. Here's a statue of Thutmose III as a warrior. And then we had a little fun with the camera when we went to the pyramids. They took all kinds of funny pictures. I'm sparing you from seeing those. Uh, these were the three pyramids. The pyramid on the left, looking at it from this direction, looks like the small one, but that is the Great Pyramid uh, of uh, Khufu. This is his son's, and I, there's a closer one, I think, later on, but all of them are very rough. They were originally very slick. They were covered over, but that exterior is worn off over the last 4,000 years, except at the very top of this particular a pyramid. Now, the reason that's all white is because it was a very cloudy day and everything else is in shadow, but the sun was just coming through right at that instant, shining right down on that particular pyramid. So that was interesting. And then this is the Sphinx. The Sphinx is just located right there with the other three pyramids. And it's a Sphinx of Cheops who built the Great Pyramid. And there was this huge rock outcropping there that blocked his view, so he had him cut down most of it and put his face on it. That's how that originated. We then, on the day we went to Alexandria, we did go into one tomb, and it was just a number of big rooms and burial chambers like the one, one in this picture, all of which are decorated all around with writings and hieroglyphs on all the walls. Then we went from there to up to uh, the next day. We flew actually south, and we flew down to... Uh, Luxor, 
And in Luxor, we got up the next morning and we went to the Valley of the Kings. Now, just before you get there, I've got this slide out of order in terms of that, but this is a temple, the temple to Hatshep, of Hatshepsut. It is not to her. It is just like if you were, if you were to build a church and put your name on it. Now, you think that's funny, but in my first church, there, it was during the Depression, they needed to build a building, and a man in the church who was very wealthy died, and his wife said, I'll pay for the building of the church if you name it after him. I'm just glad his name wasn't George. It was Paul. So anyway, the a temple of Hatshepsut, the temple of Karnak, these were the builders who built these temples for the worship of, of the gods. We went to the temple of Karnak in Luxor, and this is a model of it. And it is there. I showed you the picture in Tuesday night a week ago of the a depiction of of the conquest uh, of one of the pharaohs of Canaan, and there's some that are missing, but they were there 100, 150 years ago, and so we know what it said, and it said the hill, the hill country of David, and so I showed you that, and that would be located over on uh, this, I think it was this wall here, over on, on this wall. So it was really interesting that at the center there you have these two obelisks. The one on the left is the obelisk of Hatshepsut, and the one on the right was her son Thutmose III. He was a baby when she began to rule. When he became 10 years old, it was a co-regency, and he hated her. And when she died, he tried to eradicate all evidence of her uh, around Egypt. But on her obelisk, this is her obelisk, you have... A cartouche, here is her cartouche, and down here is his cartouche, and I don't remember what all the other writing, I don't know if they told us what all the other writing was about, but this is uh, Thutmose III's uh, cartouche, which you could see on various things around there. Also in Luxor, there was the temple, uh, another temple uh, called the Temple of Luxor, and this is Ramesses II. Now, Ramesses II is thought by liberals to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus and by Cecil B. DeMille and in the film, The Ten Commandments. He was a a very powerful Pharaoh. He conquered a lot of Egypt's enemies. And so you see a lot of places with uh, with his statue. So we went there at night, took a lot of pictures, learned a lot. There's all kinds of pictures related to his conquest. But he was not the Pharaoh of the Exodus. He's, he's late. He's uh, 1270, 1280, somewhere in there, not 1446. So there's a, uh, 200 years between the actual date and Ramesses II. We were on a, a hotel ship at this time, and we were supposed to have been able to get up and go uh, cross over to the Valley of the Kings by balloon that morning, but there was an overload of, of um, tourists, and they decided to make a little extra money and increase the charge by about 40%, so we all declined to um, go on that balloon excursion. Uh, I, there were so many. The, the, the tombs here, Tutmose, the, I mean, uh, Tutankhamun's tomb was there. We went down that. We went in, in what, five different tombs. This is just one wall in the Ramesses the sixth tomb. You walked almost a hundred yards down 
to the burial chamber, and the entire wall and ceiling was was pictured like this. Uh, Wayne went through and tried to video every. He walked all the way down with his camera, getting a video of the entire because. Wayne is working on this visual study Bible, and so he's looking for certain things. Since he didn't have anybody with him who knew what he was looking for, he decided to just video the whole thing and then find somebody later who could point something out if it was there. We went, the boat took us down to Aswan, where they have the dam on the Nile, which stopped the flooding downstream. Uh, That was pretty interesting, driving across the dam and going down there, but we had something that... uh, we had an option that we didn't know we would have, and that is to take an excursion the next day to Abu Simbel, which is further south. It took about an hour and a half, two hours by bus to get down there. And Abu Simbel, here's a picture of it. This is the burial or the temple of Nefertiti, who is the wife of Ramesses II. And what's fascinating about this is it's right on the edge of Lake Nasser. Lake Nasser is the lake that is behind the dam on the Nile. In the 60s, when they created the dam, the dam was going to overflow and destroy all these tombs. And so uh, they moved them block by block, brick by brick, all the way up here so everybody could go there. So we went into uh, Ramesses' temple where we saw various uh, things on the wall that commemorated his victory in the battle of of um, the battle of Carchemish where they defeated the Hittites and so these are just a couple of portraits of that and then that's the begin- the uh, queen his uh, queen's tomb queen Nefertiti's tomb and then we made our way back so that's it Anybody have any questions about the trip? No, no questions? No concerns? Tom will answer all your questions. He was on the trip. You're, you're trying to put, yeah, that's right. It takes a while to put it together. But the value of all of these trips, and we've got a trip to Israel coming up in April, April, I believe it's April 25th to May 7th. And that still is open, many, many places open on that, that uh, tour. And so it just gives you a great opportunity to visit these biblical sites, the biblical lands. And after you come back, as I've said so many times, you never read the Bible the same again, and you never read the newspaper the same again. Okay, thanks.